Thank you for listening to this message from the pulpit of New Grace Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We hope the message you are about to hear is a blessing to you and your family. The rest of you, go ahead and get your Bibles open to 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17. We're continuing our study through the life of David. And today, after five weeks of looking at the life of David, we're actually going to look at David, which is amazing. Uh, we looked at his grandmother. We looked at everybody. Now we're finally going to look at David. So 1 Samuel chapter 17. Uh, every, we live in a very fearful, fearful culture. Uh, everybody's scared of something. Uh, everybody's got anxiety and, and problems. And I'm not saying that that's wrong, but we all have fears. Uh, and some of these things cause so much fear and anxiety that we're unable to function. I saw a list this week of the top 10 most common phobias. Uh, number one is arachnophobia, fear of spiders. Anyone scared of spiders? Okay, a couple, couple arachnophobias here. Uh, then you got ophidobia, uh, which is the fear of snakes. Anybody scared of snakes? I used to be terrified of any type of snake. Uh, I remember when I was years, me and April first got married and I was working in construction. Uh, these guys, because you know, when you're when you're working in construction, people always, you know, they they pick on everybody, uh, they make fun of everybody, and they knew I was scared of snakes. So this one guy found this little tiny garden snake. It was like four inches long, but he chased me around that that site. I jumped through a window that had you know been framed, and I smacked my head, knocked myself out for a while. Uh, now I'm not so scared of snakes anymore. I was mowing the grass a couple weeks ago, and I saw a garter snake, and you know, picked it up and played with it a little bit. Now a copperhead, I'll chase that thing down with a lawnmower and run it over five or six times. Black snakes. Now last year we did have a black snake in the gym, and I was so brave, I made Jessica get it out for me. So I'm not. I respect snakes, uh, but I'm not too terrified of them anymore, unless they're poisonous snakes. And then no, that's one reason I won't go see. Uh, one of our missionaries in Belize, because every time I talk to him, he's like, oh, yeah, there's these coral snakes everywhere. You just step on them. There's snakes everywhere. I'm like, okay, well, great. I'm never coming to see you. Uh, I'll send you money, but I'm never coming to help you. Good luck on that. Uh, then there's sinophobia. That's the fear of dogs. Uh, aerophobia is the fear of flying. Anyone scared of flying? I'm not scared of flying. I'm scared of crashing. Uh, flying doesn't bother me. It's that crash that gets me. Uh, then there's astrophobia, the fear of thunder and lightning. Then uh, there's trinophobia, that's the scare, uh, fear of injections. Uh, here's one I, I struggle with, social phobia, which is just the, the fear of social interactions. I'm not really scared of them, I just don't like them. Uh, you know, if I'm given the choice to go to a party and hang out with people or stay home, I'm staying home. I'm going to sit on my front porch, I'm going to watch the deer and the squirrels and feed them, because you know what, I like them better than I do like most people. I'm a great pastor, I know that, you know, love people, love squirrels more. Um, then there's uh, agoraphobia, the fear of crowded spaces, and then mysophobia, which is the fear of germs. But then there's some, some odd ones. Let me know if you have one of these. Octophobia is the fear of the number eight. Anyone scared of the number eight? No? Uh, olfactophobia is the fear of smells. Somebody scared of smells? Uh, then there's uh, chlordophobia, which is the fear of clowns. We've got a couple people scared of clowns. Um, and then here's, there's, uh, I can't, I'm going to have trouble pronouncing this one. Archabutrophobia is the fear of peanut butter sticking to your, uh, to your mouth, roof of your mouth. Uh, a lot of people are scared of that. 
Um, then there's uh, tachophobia. This is, I'm, this is the fear of pregnant women. I am scared of one woman getting pregnant, and that's her. Uh, everybody else, y'all can have all the babies you want to, but if she gets pregnant, I am scared to death. Uh, then there's omnophobia, which is fear of belly buttons. Am I scared of belly buttons? Uh, anyway, a lot, of, a lot of fears. And, you know, how, how successful uh, we handle fear uh, can really determine how we, how we get along in life. You know, for most people, courage is a choice. We have to choose to be courageous. C.S. Lewis said one of the greatest struggles in his life was developing courage. Samuel chapter 17, it's all about courage. And it's probably one of the most famous stories in all of Scripture. It's the story, of course, of David and Goliath. And everyone, if you're a Christian or not a Christian, you know the story of David and Goliath. It's a, it's a metaphor for things. You know, one of the greatest things that happened uh, last year during the NCAA tournament was that Purdue lost to Fairlane Dickinson. Why? Because Purdue was a number one seed, Fairlane Dickinson was a number 16 seed, and so a number 16 seed knocked off a number one seed, which had only happened one time in history before, and that was when UVA lost to, I can't even remember who they lost to, but a number one UVA, number one seed, got knocked off by number 16 seed. So for the next three years, any time UVA basketball was playing, they mentioned that. And as a UVA fan, I hated that. And now they talk about Purdue that way and kind of forgotten about Virginia, so I'm cool with that. But anytime they mention these two, you know, a number one knocked off a number 16, it's a David and Goliath match. The Goliath, Purdue, they were, they were destined to win, but then here comes little Fairlane Dickens and this little David of a team, and they knock off this incredible giant of a team. And so, you know, everyone knows the story of David and Goliath. Uh, we're familiar with this story of courage. Uh, it's part of our culture. But there are some, some really deep things at work in this story that we usually don't see right at first. These truths uh, that we're going to look at today, they show us what it truly means to have a heart of courage. So let's start reading in 1 Samuel, starting in verse number, uh, chapter 17, start reading in verse number 1. The Bible says, Now the Philistines gathered together their armies to battle and were gathered together at Succoth which belongeth to Judah and pitched between Succoth and Azekah and Ephes Danan you can't pronounce it either and Saul then the men of Israel were gathered together and pitched by the valley of Elah and set the battle in array against the Philistines so what's happening here is the armies of the Philistines and the army of Israel they're meeting together to go to battle there's this huge valley between them one side's on one mountain the other's on the other and normally when we we think about ancient battle we kind of have this uh, romanticized glamorous idea about it you know uh, people marching into battle with with you know honor before them Battles in these days were, were, were horrible. They were terrible. You know, today in warfare, we have rules of engagement, rules of warfare, things you can and cannot do, uh, even if you're fighting your worst enemy. There are certain types of ammo that armies are not allowed to use because it causes too much damage. Uh, there are certain types of weapons you cannot use in the battlefield because it's too much mass destruction. There are things in place, to, which is weird to me, to make warfare pleasant or not as graphic uh there was no geneva convention during this time anything you could do to kill someone they did it uh they used swords 
They used spears. Uh, you know, they, and when you got up close, the battle was just tremendous. They would even take, uh, take pitch, which has got this tarry substance. They would light it on fire and just chunk burning pitch at the other army to, to burn alive hundreds or thousands of people. There's even reports during this time where if you were, uh, if the city was under siege and they were having trouble with their catapults trying to get the walls to knock down, they would find disease-ridden bodies and throw them over the wall to get everyone inside the wall sick with disease and kill that away. It was a, a terrible time to be in battle. Uh, it was done, the fighting at this time was done up close and personal. And armies, they would form these, these walls or shields of walls and just smash together with swords and spears, just, just going everywhere. And if you, if you were near the front of the line, you were going to die. That was, that was pretty much a given. If you happened to survive, you'd be covered in blood, your blood, your enemy's blood, your friend's blood. Uh, if you did get injured... You were likely going to die a few days later from an infection because during this time, if you, you know, cut your foot on a rock, you, you died of infection. It was just very common at that time. Uh, if you were wounded on the battlefield and left there, you, and you're, you, you were hoping that your, your side would find you first and take you back to camp and try to patch you up because if the enemies found you first, they would kill you and sometimes they would capture you and kill you in, in terrible ways. Uh, if you did die in the battlefield, it's... They got your body back. It was days before they went to get it. Usually they just left you out there. No funeral, no, no parade. Your families didn't know. It was just you went to battle and, and never came back. And so it's a, it's a terrible, terrible situation that they're in. That's what's being set up here. The Israelite army is facing the Philistine army, and they had reasons to be scared. Uh, the Philistines are, of course, one of Israel's uh, most perpetual enemies. Anytime there's problems in the Bible between Israel, it's usually the Philistines or some branch of the Philistines. Uh, they were one of the most advanced civilizations of the time. They were the first civilization to work with bronze and iron. And so the weapons that they have are far advanced than Israel's weapons. Brass and steel and iron, uh, swords and shields. And so Israel is incredibly outmatched. The Philistines, they controlled three of the biggest cities along the most popular trade route of the time. So they have wealth, they have money, they have technology. But Israel has one good thing on their side. They have God. They're fighting God's battle. Because the Philistines are in their land. They're not supposed to be there. God promised Judah to them. God promised Cana to them. And so God said, I'm going to... So Israel, no matter who they're facing, they should have the courage to stand before, no matter how big the army is, and say, you know what? You've got the greatest technology of the time, but we've got God. So come on. Let's get this over with. It's going to be bad for you. I don't know how it's going to be bad for you, but we've seen God. We've seen God leave the, you know, freeze the sun in the sky for a few more hours so he could kill everybody. I, we've seen him wipe out an entire army with an ocean. You know, we, God's going to do anything. I don't know how he's going to do it, but he's going to do it. But that's not what they're thinking. They're terrified. They had forgotten. Uh, they were not fully trusted in God to keep His word. So look at chapter. Uh, look at verse number three. And the Philistines stood on a mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, and there was a valley between them. And there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, 
whose height was six cubits and a span. Now, Goliath was around nine foot six inches tall. That's very tall even today, but at this time, the, the average Israelite was about five foot. So when you're looking up at a guy who is four foot taller than you, almost twice your size, he is a giant. And this guy is huge, he's strong, he's powerful. Look at verse number five. <clears throat> and he had a helmet of brass upon his head and was armed with a coat of mail. The weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of brass. So this coat of mail, it's literally in the Hebrew translated coat of scales. The only time, this is the only time it's ever used to describe clothing. Usually it's to, used to describe serpents or dragons, like Satan is the great dragon. He's full of scales. And so God's kind of given us, given us this imagery of Goliath as this huge dragon-like feature, this, the greatest enemy Israel's ever faced. Plus, uh, the chain, this chainmail is very rare, very expensive, very heavy. 130 pounds. So Goliath is walking around with something on him that weighs more than Connor. And just walking around like, like there's no, big, no problem with him. Uh, then look at verse number 6. And he had greaves of brass upon his legs and a target of brass between his shoulders. Again, it's talking about the brass Goliath has because Israel doesn't have it. Philistines have it. Goliath has it. Israel doesn't. They're still working with, with leather and stuff like that and, and cheaper metals. Uh, look at verse number 7. And the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and one bearing a shield went before him. So the, the head of his spear weighed 15 pounds. The modern shot put they use in the Olympics weighs 14 pounds. And you ever seen those guys, how much effort they put into it to get it to go like four feet? And Goliath is so big and so strong, he's, he's got a spear, can just chunk it, and it's no big deal. So God has given us this image of this incredible foe that Israel is facing. They are outnumbered. They are outmatched. They have no, no hope uh, in beating this man. And look, look at verse number 8. And he stood and cried unto the armies of Israel and said unto them, why are you come out to set your battle in array? Am I not a Philistine and ye servants of Saul? Choose you a man for you and let him come down to me. If he be able to fight with me and to kill me, then we will be, our, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you uh, be our servants and serve us. This is what is, is, is known as, as representative warfare. The Philistines are given the army a way out of a bloody a uh, bloody battle where hundreds or thousands of people are killed. They're like, hey, let's just have some representative. We got our John. We got our champion. You send your champion. Whoever wins, that's the, the winner. Now, it wasn't like if they go out there and Goliath wins, then, okay, I won, and they take their balls and go home. That's not what was going to happen. Uh, if, they, if the Philistines won, which everyone thought and everyone knew he was going to, then thousands of people would die because the Philistines wouldn't just say, okay, we won. You know, it's not like a football game where you go back to your, your, your hometown and wait for the next night. No, it's like, okay, now we've won. We're going to conquer them. The army, even though there was representative warfare, they would be slaughtered. 
They would run through the countryside, conquering every town and village they could. Their women and children would be taken as slaves, would be raped, would be murdered. There's a lot on the line for Israel here. They can't just let this go. Something has to happen. And day and night, Goliath is taunting Israel, saying, Give me a man, you cowards. You know, I'm just a Philistine. I'm just one guy. Send one guy out here, and we'll fight, and we'll figure out this thing. Then look at verse number 11. When Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Not only are the soldiers scared, but Saul is scared. Saul is terrified. Now remember, Saul is the biggest man in Israel. He head and shoulders above everybody else. He was chosen to be king because of his size, because he is their giant, he is their champion, he is their warrior. He's the one that should go out there and face Goliath, but, but he's terrified. He doesn't want to go out either. He's their, their capable giant, uh, the one that was supposed to keep them safe, was supposed to keep them secure. The king that Israel had chosen to replace God is failing them completely. He's not doing anything that he was supposed to do. Then skip down to verse number 17. And Jesse said unto David, his son, Take now for thy brethren an epath of this parched corn and ten loaves and run to the camp uh, of thy brethren and carry thee ten cheeses unto the captain of their thousand and look how thy brethren fare and take their pledge. So now, all of a sudden, we switch to David. David's not at the battle. David is back home still watching the sheep. Now, remember, he's been anointed king of Israel by Samuel. He is God's chosen king. But battle has started. All of his brothers, who his dad thought were better suited to be king than David, are, are at war. And David's back at home watching the sheep. Jesse comes to him and says, hey, I want to know how your brothers are. You know, take these, uh, basically take lunchables to them. You know, take a charcuterie board of some bread and some cheese and some crackers and, and check out how they're doing. You know, give them some food. And it wasn't because they weren't being fed. He wanted to know how the sons were. And you understand that. You know, you understand a father's desire to see how kids are doing in battle and war. Different time, they, there was no, you know, text messaging or, or Twitter or anything like that. You know, there was no news to report. So he just, he had to wait on word of mouth. So he goes, hey, take this to your brothers, see how they're doing, and bring me a report back to them. Then look at verse, number, verse 20. And David rose up early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper. And took and went as Jesse had commanded him, and he came to the trench uh, as the host was going forth to the fight and shouted for the battle. You know, even when Israel is at battle, David is still a faithful servant. Before he goes on this errand to take some, some cheese and crackers to his brothers to see how they're doing, he makes sure his sheep are taken care of. He makes sure someone is there to watch over them and watch after them uh, and while he runs his errand. Now, now, right here, when he gets there, it's a sad scene. You know, Israel, they're, they're forming the battle lines, but they're not fighting. They have no intention of fighting. They're putting on a show to hopefully scare the Philistines, but the Philistines, they got Goliath. They don't care. They got stronger weapons. They don't care. They're, they know that they're going to win this battle. So Israel's trying to be tough and trying to, you know, trying to scare Philistines out, and the Philistines just are not budging. Look at verse number 23. And as he talked with them, behold, there came up the champion of the Philistines of Gath, Goliath by name, out of the armies of the Philistines, and spake according to the same words. And David heard them. 
And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were sore afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man that has come up? Surely to defy Israel he has come up. And it shall be that the man who killeth him, the king will enrich him with great riches and will give him uh, his daughters and make his father's house free in Israel. And David spake to the men that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine and take away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him after this manner, saying, So shall it be done to the man that killeth him. So Goliath comes out again, and he's, he's insulting Israel like before, but this time David hears him. Uh, David, and he wonders, he goes, Why has no one shut this guy up? Why do y'all keep letting him uh, talk bad about us, talk bad about God? Now, of course, the people in it, the soldiers are like, Man, if anyone kills him, man, they're going to be set for life. Saul's going to make him, you know, going to let him marry his daughter, going to give him all kinds of money. He's going to be set for life. David doesn't care about that. David's like, you know, he's defying the God of Israel. He is insulting my God. Why are we letting him get away with this? Why are we letting him talk? Someone ought to go out there and shut him up. Look at verse 28. And Eliab, the eldest brother, heard when he spake unto the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why camest that down hither? And, who, who, and with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart, for thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. Now remember Eliab, he's the one that God passed up as, as king. Jesse thought he was the most obvious choice. Samuel thought he was the most obvious choice. And God said he's not the most obvious choice. And here's why. He's angry, he's resentful, he's arrogant, and he starts insulting David. You know, why are you here? The only thing you're good for is watching those few sheep. Who's watching your sheep, David? That's all you're good for. Eliab knows he's been anointed king. Eliab knows what David's future is. But he's insulting David. You know, you're too prideful to be here. Now, Goliath is a big enough challenge for David, but now he's, he's you know, he's facing ridicule from the people who should, who should support him, his brother. Now, if you don't have any brothers, and you think, yeah, he should support him, you don't know what brothers are like. Brothers do not support each other. Uh, you know, brothers are, you know, we, we pick on each other. We make fun of each other. My, I have so many scars from my brothers. Uh, that's ridiculous. Me and April the other day, she was talking. She saw some, some TikTok. I don't know. She watches TikTok like a heathen. I watch it on Instagram like an adult. Uh, she was watching some TikTok about some, you know, you don't, why you don't mess with southern women. Because they were doing an interview and they asked these northern women, hey, if you, you know, someone was going to, was trying to hurt your children, would you kill to protect them? And the northern women were like, oh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. And they asked the southern women and the southern women were like, yeah, my kids, your kids. If a kid's in trouble around me, whoever's hurting them is going to die. Uh, we'll, we'll kill them, we'll bury the body, we'll have a barbecue after, no big deal. And she asked me, she goes, would, you, would you kill for, for our kids? Would you kill for me? I told her, man, there, there are six people in this world I will go to prison for. You are three kids and my mom and my sister. She said, what about your brothers? Like, ah, they're on their own. Who cares about them? They, they can take care of themselves. So, but David here, he is, he's getting ridiculed by his brother. He doesn't, you know, so he's, he, he's not sure what's going to go on. Now, Goliath, uh, someone goes to Saul and tells Saul, say, hey, there's, there's a great warrior here who says they could fight Goliath and they're talking a big game. And so Saul's excited. He's like, oh, Someone else will take care of this guy. So he calls David in, real excited, and then he sees David. This little 15-year-old shepherd boy. Uh, and so he's like, man, you, this, is, this is not going good for me. Then skip way down to verse number 33. And Saul said to David, 
Thou art not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for thou art but a youth, and he is a man of war from his youth. So not only is Goliath literally twice his size, but he's an experienced fighter, and David's, you know, David's not, he's just a shepherd, verse 34. And David said to Saul, thy servant kept his father's sheep, and there came a lion and a bear and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went after him and smote him and delivered it out of his mouth. And when he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and smote him and slew him. Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he hath defied the armies of the living God. David said, Moreover, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion, now the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord shall be with thee. Now, the first thing I noticed about this is David just gave himself a promotion. Look back. It says, uh, and I kept my father's sheep. Kept as in past tense. David said, I was a shepherd, but I'm not anymore. Now I'm a giant killer. That was my job. This is what God's got for me now. I used to keep sheep. Now I kill giants. That's what I do. Uh, and he takes his staff and his, his slingshot. And he goes, not only this, but I've, I've killed a lion and a bear uh, protecting my sheep. This guy, he's nothing. And so Saul says, go, the Lord be with thee. Which in Hebrew is a nice way of saying, nice knowing you, kid. Good luck getting killed by this guy. Uh, then look at verse number 38. <clears throat> and Saul armed David with his armor, and he putteth a helmet of brass upon his head, and also armed with a coat of mail, and David girded his sword upon his armor, and he essayed to go, for he had not proved it. And David said unto Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not proved them. And David uh, put them off. And he took his staff in his hand and chose him five smooth stones out of the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag, which he had, even in a script, and his sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistines. So Saul tries to give David weapons and armor to try to protect him a little bit. But David says, you know, I can't wear these. You know, again, Saul is, is head and shoulders above everybody. He is taller than David. David doesn't know how to use them. So David says, I can't take these. I'll take my own weapons. And he takes shepherd's tools. He doesn't take weapons. He takes a staff. He takes a stone, uh, five stones. And he, he takes his, his slingshot. Now, I've heard a lot of people uh, have sermons about, you know, those five stones. What do those five stones represent? And, man, they got all kinds of points. It's, it's Bible, it's prayer, it's, it's tithing, it's church attendance, it's good music. Those are the five stones that David took. I heard, you know, some people say, you know, David took those five stones because Goliath had four brothers and David knew that. You know what David took five stones? That's all he could fit in his bag. There's no great spiritual... He took five stones because he could fit five stones in his bag, and he found five stones that were good enough. So he's like, well, I got five. That's all I'm going to need. So he didn't have this great, you know, he, he just grabbed five stones and went about his way. Uh, so the truth is he picked five stones because that's all he felt he needed. Then look at verse 41. <clears throat> and the Philistine came on and drew near unto David, and the man that bare the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth and ruddy and a fair countenance. We looked at it a couple weeks ago when we first met David. Ruddy, he's a redheaded, you know, he's a redheaded, cute boy with beautiful eyes. We saw that. Now, I don't know why God put so much emphasis on how beautiful David's eyes were, but David had some good-looking eyes. And so he's a redheaded kid with beautiful eyes. Um, uh, and the Philistine said unto, said unto David, Am I a dog? that thou didst uh, come out to me with staves. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give thy flesh to the fowls of the air and the beasts of the field. So David, uh, Goliath is furious 
because for, for weeks he's been out there screaming at the Philistines, send me a warrior, send me a warrior, send me a warrior. And they sent him a kid. He's a cute kid. Beautiful eyes, that kid, but he's a kid. Why are you sending me this kid? In verse uh, 46, uh, verse 45, Then said David to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee, and I will take thine head from thee, and I will give uh, thy, the carcass of the host of the Philistines this day to the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with the sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give, and, and he will give you into our hands. David, for a shepherd, he's a pretty good trash talker right off the bat. He's like, you're going to kill, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to kill all you. I'm going to cut your head off, God's going to give it to you, we're going to let the bird eat your flesh, it's going to be wonderful, it's going to be great. And he says, I'm, ta- I'm talking to two audiences here. He goes, God's going to do this for two groups of people. First, for the world to see that God fights for Israel. For the world to see that we serve the one true God. That all your, your false gods and your false idols and all your, your strength and all your armies and all your, 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 your technology doesn't stand up to God because God fights for us. And now I'm also going to re- remind Israel because they've forgotten. Israel has forgotten what God's going to do. So we're going to show the world that God's for us and we're going to show Israel that God is for us. See, David is asking a different question than anyone else. Saul and all Israel are thinking, do we have anyone big enough? Do we have anybody strong enough? Do we have anybody skilled enough to beat this giant? And David is sitting there thinking, who's this guy think he is against God? Does this guy really think he stands a chance against God? Not against me. He's not like, you know, I killed a, I'm going to kill this guy because I'm, he's like, I got God on my side. Who's this guy think he is fighting me uh, against God? He has no chance against God. See, courage comes when you change the questions you ask. Instead of asking, you know, what am I capable of? Start asking, what does God want to do in this situation? What does God want to do in this problem? Look at verse 48. And it came to pass when the Philistines arose, uh, when the Philistine arose and came and drew nigh to meet David, that David hasted and ran to the army uh, to, to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took a, a fence, a stone, and slang it and smote the Philistine in his forehead, that the stone sunk into his forehead, uh, and he fell upon his face to the earth. I always love uh, this, this story here. You know, it's not like, oh, he hit him in the head. Oh, he's like, no, he threw it. It sunk in his forehead. Uh, but also, he fell in his face to the earth. How many of you remember that, that, uh, that movie, JFK? where they, they put so much emphasis on JFK, and I'm not here to say who shot JFK or was it Lee Harvey Oswald or the Secret Service. It was the Secret Service. Um, who, who really killed JFK. But you're like, you know, his head went back and to the left because he was shot front and the, and the right. So it went back and to the left and back and to the left. Here's the same thing. David hits Goliath head on with a stone right in the middle of his head. You think he would fall backwards, but he falls forward. Say, why does he fall forward? Because God was holding his head. I think God was like, come on, David, pitch it right here. Ah, bam, and slammed him in. Just shows how, how God's taking, that's in my notes. I just think that's always a cool part of the story. 
And so David, he, he, slings this, uh, he slings this thing and he kills this guy. Verse 50, so David prevailed against, over the Philistine with the sling and with the stone and smote the Philistine and slew him, but there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore David ran and stood upon the Philistine and took his sword. So he's got Goliath's sword here and drew it out of the sheath thereof and slew him and cut off his head thereof. And when the Philistines saw their champion was dead... They fled, and the men of Israel and of Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines until the, thou come to the valley of the gates of Elkron, and the wounded of the Philistines fell down by the way to Shemera, even at the Gath and to Elkron, and the children of Israel returned from chasing after the Philistines, and they spoiled their tents. This is a, a great, great story. This, this small little shepherd boy kills Israel's greatest enemy. And doesn't kill him with a stone, then after Goliath's dead, because after he, after he hit him with the stone, the Bible says he was dead. He goes, he grabs Goliath's huge sword, which I'm wondering where his armor bearer was at this time. Grabs his sword and he lops off his head and then holds his head up and all the Philistines are going, uh-oh. And they run and Israel, finally they get courage and they run after him. But what's the, what's the main point of this story? The bigger they are, the harder they fall. Is that, that what God's trying to tell us? Always bet on the underdog? Never stop believing in yourself. Or, if you trust God, he'll give you victory over any giant you face in your life. And I've heard some of those preach from one point or another, and they're all, they've all have valid uh, points about the story, but that's not the main point of the story. See, we always look at stories in the Bible, especially Old Testament stories, and we think they're about us. I'm David fighting Goliath. I'm David, I've got this great, this great giant. I've got to, you know, God's going to help me beat him. We are in the stories, but we are not David. We're, whenever you look at the story, you're like, oh, there's a good guy and there's a bad guy. Who am I? You're the bad guy. That's just the way it is. You're the bad guy. You're not the good guy. You're the bad guy. So David here is not really who we, who is represented by us. You know, this isn't about David. This is David is a picture of Jesus. Now, that will get to you. Jesus, the whole point of the Bible is about Jesus. Every story in the Bible is about Jesus. So that brings me to my first point. Jesus, number one, is the true David. David's a small, unassuming shepherd. Nothing to look at. Jesus, small, unassuming carpenter. Isaiah says he's nothing to look at. Now, David here, the Bible says David, we've seen this. Yeah, he's redheaded, but he, man, David's a good-looking kid. David's got beautiful eyes. He's got a great complexion. Isaiah says Jesus is nothing special. He's nothing to look at. He's nothing, you know, nobody's going to look at Jesus and go, oh, man, Jesus got great eyes. But they do that. Jesus is just unassuming. No one's going to recognize him. You know, if Jesus came, came back to earth, walked in, we wouldn't recognize him as Jesus. We'd be like, oh, well, that's a, that's a guy. He's, just, he's unassuming. He's nothing to look at. And Jesus, this unassuming you know, little boy, this unassuming thing, the small, unassuming, what, the person no one would pick, he fought the greatest giant we ever face as a giant of Satan. Satan comes at us with this sort of sin, the spear of the curse, and Jesus defeated him for us. Like Israel, we stood on the sidelines as Jesus conquered our greatest enemy because we couldn't. We couldn't, we couldn't defeat death. 
We couldn't defeat hell. We couldn't defeat the grave. We couldn't defeat our sin nature. We had no chance of beating the giant of the enemy. So Jesus came and did it for us. See, David was Israel's representative in this battle. Jesus was our representative on the greatest battle ever faced. He lived a life that we couldn't. He faced temptation like we face, but he never sinned. He lived a sinless life. He died in our place. He was condemned for us. He absorbed the wrath of God for us. He died and so that we wouldn't have to spend eternity in hell. He took our punishment so that we wouldn't have to. Dying for us, but then winning when he rose again three days later to reconcile us to God the Father and show us, hey, death is gone. Death has no sting anymore. The grave has no, has no power over you. For the believer, we put our faith and trust in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ payment for our sins. Death isn't, a, 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 isn't ending. It's a victory for us. We close our eyes in death and open them and see our Savior face to face. No more pain, no more tears, no more heartache. He won the battle for us. Because of his victory, we are freed from the threats of the enemy. Now, Goliath doesn't primarily represent all the struggles we face in life. It can. There, there is an aspect of that where you could look at, let's say, that's a giant that we face in our life. But he doesn't primarily represent those giants we can't overcome. He primarily represents Satan. He defies God. He threatens God's people. He tries to defeat God's people. He holds a sword of our sin and the curse of death. He is, the Bible says that, Jesus, that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. When you look at that in the New Testament, it literally means he's the taunter of the brethren. He taunts us with our failures, with our sins, with our shortcomings and shame. And in our own strength, we cannot overcome him. Because here's the thing, what he accuses us of is true. He's not telling us lies. He doesn't come to someone who's, who's never, who, you know, somebody who's been faithful to their wife for, for 60 plus years. He doesn't come to them and say, oh, you're an adulterer. No, he comes to somebody who's struggled with that and say, yeah, you're struggling with what you look at on the internet and the pornography. And yeah, you're an adulterer. Why would God do anything for you? Or you're struggling with this sin or that sin or jealousy or pride or gossip or whatever it is. He tells us who we really are. And we can't, be, we can't beat him. So Jesus did it for him. At the cross, Jesus took the curse of our sin. He took the sword and killed Satan with it. Hebrews 2 says, For as much then as the children are, as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, to deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. See, we were captive to shame, to guilt, to fear of death and to sin. And then Jesus came. He took on flesh and blood and he disarmed and killed the enemy once and for all. Through his life, death, and resurrection, we have the freedom that we would never experience on our own and we no longer have to fear the sting of death or the pull of sin. Second thing it tells us is because of Jesus, I have confidence. You know, what if... What if the threat of things that scare us was gone? You know, we fear rejection. 
as humans, we just, no one wants to be rejected. No one wants to be cast aside. But see, Jesus took the fear out of that by making us acceptable unto God. Through his death and burial and resurrection, I am accepted by God the Father. You know what that means? It doesn't matter who else rejects me. Oh, well, what about what, what about what people think of you? Who cares? God's accepted me. I'm accepted by the Father. I don't have to fear being rejected by anyone else. You know, in Christ, there is no condemnation. He took away our sins as far as the east is from the west, and through the gospel, we are called children of God. We are joint heirs with Jesus. That means whatever Jesus has a right to, I have a right to. When I know that, whatever, whatever other people think of me doesn't matter. I'm not held captive. Now, I'm not saying be a jerk. Like, I don't care what you think about me. Jesus loves me. Well, maybe, but people who really love Jesus don't act like that. But I don't have to be captive to, oh, man, I hope everybody likes me. Look, here's the thing. Not everybody's going to like me. I'm okay with that because God loves me. And here's the, if I am doing what God's called me to do, and I'm preaching God's word the way he's called me to, and I'm living how God's called me to live, why do I care what other people think about me? What do I, because I know God has my record. God knows my heart. God knows what I'm doing and what I stand for. And if I'm right with him, as long as I'm serving him, I'm fine. Because I'm accepted by him. You know, we, fear, we all feel failure. You know, we all feel like we're defined by our last mistake. The last thing you messed up with, that's what you're defined by. See, I don't have to fear that because Jesus says, that his love is so great for me that nothing can separate me from him. He says he has plans for me to succeed. So I'm not defined by my mistakes. I'm not defined by my failures. We fear death. But Jesus took the sting out of death. Through his resurrection, I no longer have to fear it. Death is not the end for the child of God. It's just the beginning. There is victory in death for us. If God is fighting for me, just like David said, who do I have to fear? There's this nine foot six giant with a huge 15 pound spear. He's a warrior. He's trained. Everybody scares him, is scared of him. But David says, I've got God. What, I don't got to fear that guy. God's fighting for me. And if God be for me, who could be against me? Story gives me confidence. And in all the suffering, all the pain, all the loss, all the death, God has already won the battle for me. Third thing it tells me, and final thing, is because of Jesus, I have courage. See, this story is mainly about what Jesus would do one day for me on the cross. The giant of sin, the giant of shame, the giant of death would completely be eliminated by him for us. And it shows us how God works through his people when they trust him. Yeah, David is a picture of, of Jesus, of the coming Messiah. But David, in this story, is a real guy at a real time in history facing a real dangerous giant. But God had promised to give the land to Israel. God had promised to defeat all the enemies, including the Philistines. And Goliath stood in the way of that. David saw him as opposition to what God wanted him to do. So David wasn't like, I'm going to fight Goliath because he's, he's an enemy of Israel. David looked at Goliath and said, you're standing in the way of God. 
So I don't have to worry about it because God's going to take care of anything that's in his way. He said, you're not going to stand in the way of what God wants to do for Israel. Here's the thing. The enemy is still trying to stop the work of God today. He does it in the church. He does it in our culture. He does it in our community. When I see Satan fighting what God wants to do in my family, I can have the courage to fight him, to say, you're not going to undo what God is trying to do through my marriage. You're not going to undo what God is trying to do through my children. You're not going to undo the work that God is fighting to do for my family. You can threaten me, you can wave your sword, but I come in the name of the Lord, and he is always victorious. See, Jesus' victory doesn't mean I'm never going to face obstacles or that every obstacle I face I'm going to overcome on earth. But it does mean when I see Satan attacking, I can stand against him and say the battle belongs to God. He's going to fight for me, and God always wins. See, there are four types of courage we see in this story. We see no courage. Saul had no courage. He compared his size to the size of the enemy. That may be where some of you are today. You're looking at your enemy. You're looking at your obstacle. You're looking at your problem. You think, man, there's no way I can win this. Or you could have disappointed courage. That's what Israel had. They, the champion that they chose, Saul, had failed him. You may be there. You put your trust in someone or something, and it's, it's let you down. It's failed you. It's caused bitterness and anger. Or there's counterfeit courage. That's Goliath. He thought his strength and his size guaranteed him a victory. This is the most dangerous place to be for a child of God, to put your trust in yourself. So far, nothing's come your way that you can't handle on your own. And so like Goliath, one day you're going to find out you're wrong. Or you're going to have real courage. That's David. He knew he could face that giant because he had God on his side. The battle is the Lord's, and it's already been won. He fights for you. He never leaves you. The victory belongs to Jesus. If we keep our eyes on him, we can have real courage. Thank you for listening to this message from New Grace Baptist Church. For more information about New Grace, check out our website at www.reachingroanoke.com.